Welcome to the True North Podcast. My name is James McKenzie, and I've got Trey. How's it going, man? Man, going great today. How are you doing, James? Doing great. Doing great. We've got a special guest with us today that I'm going to let Trey introduce. I've had the privilege for um, about the last year, year and a half now, of being one of the chaplains at the Edmond Police Department. Um, and so something that's just been on my heart, I mean, through True North, just had a heart for our military, for first responders. God opened up this door, and it was something that I was like, absolutely, yes. Um, and so, man, very, very honored and blessed today that our guest to, today is J.D. Younger. And J.D. is actually the chief of police for the Edmond Police Department. So he is the, uh, he's the guy that gets the final say-so, um, good or bad. He's the one that, it, you know, it falls on his shoulders. But so honored and blessed to have him here today. A great guy that has gotten to know him. Guy that leads really, really well. All the men there respect but a guy that also loves the Lord and husband, father, all those things. We're so honored and blessed to have you here today, JD. Welcome. Thank you, Trey. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. So, man, do me a favor. Just tell us a little bit about you. Um, where you know where are you from? What your family look like? And who's JD? <laughs> okay. Well, I love the opportunity to share. Uh, I tell people frequently I'm a I'm a genealogy kind of guy. I, li- I like to know the history of my family and things and. And so I've gone back several generations, and as close as I can tell, no one in my family has ever done anything notable uh, as far as we're not generals. Uh, we, we weren't uh, removed uh, royalty from some European country. We're just normal people. But uh, no outlaws either. So yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, people will ask me, youngers. Uh, so in the, in the 1800s, uh, some may be familiar that there were some uh, people that were on the opposite side of the law of where I'm at with the last name Younger. And uh, so family folklore tell you, oh, yeah, we're related to those people. But genealogy says, ah, we don't think so. Uh, but I say all that to say I'm just I'm just a normal person, I think. Uh, my family originally uh, for the last four or five generations from Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, really the Oklahoma City area. Yep. Uh, so I was raised, and uh, for those from Oklahoma, I would say South Oklahoma City mm-hmm. uh, during my elementary school years and eventually found my way to, to Dell City. Uh, my dad was an electrician, uh, now retired. Uh, my mom was a beautician or a cosmetologist, now retired. And so they raised uh, me uh, during that latter half of my adolescence in, in Dell City, America. Um, and then I was fortunate to have two parents in the home uh, that both had, they were gainfully employed and so uh, met all my material needs. Um, and then after graduating, um, you know, no one in my family had ever graduated from college. Oh, wow. And so they were they were workers. Yep. Uh, my grand my grandfathers uh, were mechanics and welders. Uh, my grandmothers, in addition to being homemakers, one worked for AT and um, T. The the other one was a homemaker, a mother of seven. So and then their grandfather, you know, their their parents were farmers and and things that you would expect in Oklahoma from the 1900s. So yeah. just a pretty traditional uh, type of uh, up upraising and. Uh, but when I graduated high school, I did have aspirations of, of going to college. I didn't know why, uh, just because I thought, well, that's the thing you do. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, kind of stumbled my way through a collegiate career at, at multiple different institutions uh, and finally ended up at the University of Oklahoma. Oh, uh, yeah, Boomer Sooner. Boomer Sooner, <laughs> uh, which at the time they had a law enforcement administration program in their political science department. And so I was fortunate enough to, to get into that program and it wasn't because I had uh, ideas of being in law enforcement. Uh, I just liked the subject matter. Um, and I had happened to develop friendships with several men, uh, as it would happen, that were pursuing law enforcement careers. 
And so, the, you know, in hindsight, that was just God, yeah. you know, tilling the ground and, uh, and getting me in position to kind of where he was going to take me. And so when, when I graduated from the University of Oklahoma in 1994, it was at a time that the federal government uh, was, was expanding law enforcement through federal grants uh, to hire cops under what they called the community-oriented policing philosophy. And so I graduated in 1994. Uh, the city of Norman, which is where the University of Oklahoma is located, happened to be hiring officers at that time because uh, they had received a grant from the federal government for community-oriented policing. And so I happened to be one of eight officers that was hired on that grant and thus started uh, you know, my experience with law enforcement and policing. Wow. So not even something you ever necessarily saw yourself doing, just doors begin to open and begin to, begin to follow that. Yeah, absolutely not. No one in my family had ever been in law enforcement. Now, I did have a family history of military service, um, but, but even that was real subtle in my family. Uh, so my dad and his dad and my both grandparents and, and so on had served in the military uh, during armed conflicts, so World War II, Korean War, Vietnam. Um, and that was known, but it wasn't really discussed as something to aspire to uh, or to follow. Um, and so I kind of took that for granted. I have developed a bigger appreciation for that as I've matured and, and kind of understood the world more. But yeah, no, no one ever pushed that direction. Uh, no one in law enforcement. Uh, truth be known, kind of tongue-in-cheek, there's probably more people related to me on the, on the opposite side of law enforcement than on the, on the, the side that I'm representing. But uh, yeah, it just happened that God, God kind of led me in different directions. So what's this look like from a family standpoint? Because this is something, there's a lot of cool things about being an officer. I mean, you know, you get the lights and, you know, you get the car <laughs> and the badge and all that. There's some really cool parts to it. Um, but it's not all the razzle-dazzle. It's not all. And so walk me through a little bit. What's that been like as a husband, as a father? And how have you weighed that out? And what, what's that kind of look like from a very personal level? Good observations. There, there are a bunch of intriguing aspects uh, to policing. I'll, I'll just talk about policing. Uh, but, but like a lot of things, it, it looks good on the shelf. Uh, it sounds really cool. It looks good in the movies. Uh, but we all know that's not reality. Yeah. Uh, like you're alluding to, um, you know, if you're, if you're a police officer, you're working weird shifts. Uh, you're working overnight. You're working in the afternoon. You're working on weekends and holidays. Uh, now, as you mature in the profession and you get 15, 20 years on, uh, then, then maybe you have good days off, you know, so you're on Friday, Saturday off, yeah. uh, but you're still working holidays. You're still working special events. You're still getting called in uh, because that's what you signed up for and understanding it's not just you that ripples through your family, uh, whether it be your spouse, uh, whether it be your children, your parents, your in-laws, um, it's, it's a, it's an impact. And so uh, I appreciate the question and being able to kind of talk about that. For me, uh, again, I've been blessed in numerous ways in my life. And, and one of them uh, has been when I started in the profession, I was single. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. And so for the first five years I was in policing, uh, I worked afternoons and midnights and was on the SWAT team and got call outs. And I didn't have to answer to anybody but me. Um, you know, my, my parents were around and obviously carried the concerns that one would have for a family member in, in this profession, but, but they weren't in, we were, we didn't live together. And so they weren't experiencing it every day, day in and day out. And so I had, I had a huge benefit there. Um, not many have that. Yeah. And so by the time that I had met my wife, 
she never knew anything other than me working in the in the police profession. And so I think that's a blessing of sorts uh, because you're just acclimated to it from the beginning. Um, and then, of course, uh, during our courtship and prior to getting married, you have those discussions about, hey, you understand what this is and the elements of the profession. And and to be quite honest, there there are uh, aggregate data about the profession that, that's not the most uh, exciting. And what I mean by that is we have a, a very high suicide rate yeah. compared to the general public. Uh, substance abuse is an issue in policing compared to the general public. Um, you know, fidelity uh, in a marriage uh, continue, continues to be an issue compared to the general public. And so understanding that all of those, uh, you know, vices uh, are challenges in a marriage and in a family, they do exist in the profession. And so you kind of have to talk through how are we going to guard against that. Um, why, do, why do you think that is? What specifically is it about policing that leads to those things? I mean, I have some ideas on some of it, but I want to hear from out the horse's mouth. What what is it about that profession? And I think this is something good that's for us listening. If we know officer, you know, whether we go to church with someone, we meet, you know, we meet them, family, friends, um, how we can kind of honestly love on them. Yeah, I, I will tell you, I, I, I definitely have personal experience in 30 years uh, in the profession, uh, but I lean on Dr. Kevin Gomartin a lot. Mm-hmm. And so for anyone that has more interest in that, I would recommend The Emotional Survivor of Law Enforcement. It's a great, it's book. A great book. And he talks about the psychological impact of the profession from hypervigilance yep. uh, to having your brain on all the time to some of the biological things that happen. Uh, I, I'm an amateur uh, brain scientist, and so I like to talk about dopamine and cortisol and all the, yeah. all the things that your brain does to you just to get you through a normal day. Uh, and then how those, uh, those benefits uh, that the brain allows you to, to, to utilize in your normal course of life, how those are pushed to extremes in professions where you have to be vigilant to a different level and the negative impact it can have on you. Uh, and I'm not trying to blame, you right. know, some of those vices and, and maybe our uh, uh, exposure to them and, uh, in the profession. I'm just trying to say it's, more than, it's not a character flaw by and far, although it could be. Uh, but, but in my experience, it's more people not being aware of how their body's responding to the profession they're in. And so they can't put in some of those um, defenses against it. Um, and so, because you, you'll also see other self-harming things, uh, obesity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we talked about substance abuse. And a lot of those are manifestations of what's going on inside your brain and what's going on physiologically that if you're not aware of it, you don't know how to counteract it or guard against it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's a pretty deep topic. But uh, just knowing going in. And 30 years ago, uh, I think the topics were talked about more tongue-in-cheek or in jest. And now I think the profession really has embraced uh, the issues that their members are exposed to. And, and from day one, they're telling you about, hey, we got to look at our sleep patterns. We got to look at what we're eating. We have to guard against our, our, in our personal lives uh, that we're not uh, succumbing to the uh, things that you can do in this profession. So I think we're a world ahead of where we were 30 years ago. That's so good. Well, and it, we won't dig into that, all the hypervigilance right. and all those things. But, it, man, for all the listeners, just know – there, it's a very unique profession, although I will say to a degree, all first responders to some degree, veterans, military, active, you know, combat, that we know that there's a certain amount of damage that's kind of done psychologically and officers, the difference is 
it's every shift. It's every time they go to work, they go into this hypervigilance mode. And so adapting to that and what it does to the family. And like you said, the cortisol, dopamine, all these things. And all I share all that is so that those of you listening, if, you know, anytime you know an officer, if someone's in, like I said, a church member, friend, family, understanding that, gosh, what, what they go through is a very unique situation and how to best love them, how to be understanding of these doesn't mean that we accept the sin doesn't mean that it's okay or like you said it's not an excuse but so often understanding that these things are going on behind the scenes often and so being able to walk through that so let me uh let me change gears real quick how do you walk out your faith working for the government i mean you're a civil servant you work for the city of edmond and and Edmund, you know, if those of you are listening aren't in Oklahoma, you know, we're here in Oklahoma. It's still kind of the Bible Belt, um, at least for today. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so it's still somewhat, we're somewhat in a bubble, I guess you could say a little bit. But it's still a city. It's still, you know, a government. And there's still separation of church or state, whether we want to argue if that's right or wrong or not. And so how do you walk that out in your faith, being a civil servant and working for the government? What's that look like for you? Yeah, it, it may help if I kind of back up and, and talk to you a little bit about my journey into faith. Yes, um, absolutely. And so I, I was raised in a home that we were we were Easter and Christmas attenders, uh, but my grandparents were regular attenders. So the church was always kind of in the background of my family, uh, just maybe not in the forefront. Uh, and it definitely wasn't in, in my heart uh, through adolescence. Uh, but but I came to faith at 19. It was actually at a, at a Christmas service in, in my uh, great-grandmother's church. Um, but even at that time, accepting God and, and praying that, that Jesus would uh, come into my heart, and, uh, and, and I was committed to it uh, on the inside. Uh, but outwardly, uh, I would just clearly tell you, I didn't live uh, the life of someone convicted of a Christ follower. Um, but it was there. And, and he continued to work on me and work with me uh, through that, those, that early 20s. Uh, and so when I came into policing and was in a police academy with some dear friends, uh, you know, 10 other men uh, that had a variety of different experiences, but several of them were believers. And one of them in particular was a very strong believer, had a, had a background in youth ministry, and, and we just had a really good connection. And so over those first couple of years of our employment, uh, unbeknownst to me, you know, God was using him to kind of work in my life. And, and, and then so around, around the age of 25, 26, uh, you know, I was really convicted that, that what I had committed to and asked Jesus for at the age of 19, I really wasn't holding up my end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. bargain. Uh, not even close. And, and so can relate with that. Uh-huh. And so that was kind of my... Uh, coming of age story to, to look myself in the mirror and say, Hey, some things are going to have to change. And, uh, and so, and God, he blessed me tremendously up to that point and has blessed me tremendously since, but it was just coming to it in, in my mid twenties, I was already in the profession, uh, had some mentors in the profession, uh, that were believers. And, and so it was probably easier for me, uh, because, because my story was that, Mm -hmm. um, and so I had years in the profession to mature and, and then again, through my own church life, uh, finding a church home and, and becoming a, you know, a worker in the church there. And, um, eventually I was ordained in 2011 as a deacon, um, and got to learn from a lot of mature, uh, men yeah. in, in that capacity. And, and so take all that and, and how does that apply at work? Um, 
and, and so I, I hate to say it's been easy for me, uh, but I don't think I knew anything else. And so just understanding uh, that there are certain lines. Uh, and the biggest one, it, it's not hard. It's, it, you can't proselytize. Yeah. You know, uh, yes. but I can love on people all day long. Um, and I think, and I'll, and I'll just speak for myself, uh, one of the hardest struggles is understanding God needs you, but he doesn't need you to do what he's doing. Yeah. You know, he good. needs you to follow him. Yeah. He needs you to love on people and he'll take care of the rest. Uh, and so I don't feel the need to go chapter and verse on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they ask, I'll answer if I know. Uh, but but that's not that's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to love on people. Uh, well, and I think you and and I will say you walked that out in a very real way. So once a year, there's um, kind of the officer of the year. There's a police officer's banquet. And as a matter of fact, we just had it here shortly. But last year's banquet, um, the chaplains we had a table and we were kind of all there together. And you actually recognized the chaplain's table, and you specifically made that point. You said, hey, guys in here, these are our chaplains. They're not here to proselytize. They're just here to support you, here to love you, here to be there for you. And I thought that was so great because it's often, doesn't mean sharing the gospel is wrong. We never want to shy away from that. But that is frankly what so many people tend to push against and what they think and when it can, we can kind of drop some of those walls to say, hey, we're just here to love on you. When, you know, it's, it's that old saying that people don't care what you know until they know that you love them, you know. And if we can go through and just love them, be there for them, help them out in those hard times, it actually opens the door to share faith. For sure. That, that, that's been my experience. Uh, and again, in this, in this hyper divisive world that we live in. Yes. Uh, in, I think people are looking for excuses to try to drive wedges between others. And so I, I'm not saying I'm always successful, uh, but I hope uh, that my faith doesn't get in the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it would be easy to do yeah. uh, because I am a Christ lover uh, and he has done so much. He's done the ultimate for me. And so I do want to share that. Uh, but if the ultimate outcome is pushing someone further away, uh, I, I pray that he makes me conscious of of those situations and, and doesn't let my own uh, uh, hubris get me in a, in a bad situation, get him in a bad situation. Yeah, that's good. So I do want to, cause you kind of talked about being in a divisive time and I don't think any of us would debate that sadly. <laughs> um, how does that, what's that look like? Because there is, I think a, um, there's at least a significant portion of our country that there is kind of an anti-sentiment to law enforcement and policing. Um, once again, we're a little bit immune to that here in Oklahoma, but not completely. Um, and so what's that look like? How do you keep your faith? How do you walk through that when, you know, you're there to kind of protect people, serve people, and a lot of times they they don't even want you there? What does that look like from a personal standpoint? Because I know it's sometimes easy to separate that this is me as the job, as a profession, as an officer, but at the end of the day, we always go home and we're a man, we're a person, we have feelings and we have a soul and conscience. What does that look like for you? And have you, have you walked that out personally? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and, and I will definitely give you the answer from my perspective. Uh, but for those that might be listening to this, I, I do want to reiterate, as the chief of police uh, of a town of 100,000 people with 126 officers, 174 or so total employees, the likelihood that when you're in need of a police service that I'm showing up 
it is really like one in a thousand. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the reason I bring that up is my perspective and how I deal with it is probably going to be a little bit different than how mm. a person on the front lines yeah. that's, ha- that's having to have these interactions in real world situations while they're trying to deliver service. And so I don't want any officers that may be listening uh, thinking that guy doesn't know what's going on. Well, yeah, I may not know your exact situation because right. I don't do what you do. And so my response is really from, from my position. And, and I'll take you back a little bit. So in 2014, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, um, not, that, not that there weren't issues and conflicts and divisiveness and discussion about the profession, but I really think that was a turning point. Um, and a turning point for the country in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think prior to that, uh, a lot of the dialogue was, was dismissive from people on uh, – you know, the, the law enforcement or policing side of the issue. No, we're doing good work. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're trying to detract from it, you don't understand it. And so there just wasn't a real healthy dialogue. I think it changed in 2014. Uh, and I'm not saying better or worse, I'm just saying it changed. A lot of people in my profession that I have a discussion, that I have discussions with, talk about how difficult uh, that the world has become uh, and, and I don't deny that it's become different. Uh, a lot of people have left the profession, and we've really seen that over the last three years since George Floyd. Uh, but what I will say is for those of us that are still here, uh, I find it a great opportunity, a tremendous opportunity to engage with the people that we're supposed to be serving. Uh, and I think that's where you start from. We're a service organization. And so if, if the people we are serving are telling us, hey, your service isn't meeting our expectations, we need to take time to listen. Uh, I think it's been interesting to me. I'm a history buff. I told you all before that just individually, I like genealogy. I like those types of things. For anyone that knows the history of our profession, not to acknowledge that like all things with a government, we are a tool of authority for the government. And so... Anything that the government has done through our profession, we have to own that. And so for us to look back and acknowledge there are reasons that people may feel the way that they feel. Um, there are good reasons. And so we need to accept that. Uh, that doesn't mean that you individually have done anything wrong right. necessarily. Uh, but your profession that you're a member of does have a history like any profession. And so we, we need to understand that and, and then work through how do we get to a better place. Uh, and if there's ever been a time to work through it, now's the time. Yeah. A lot of opportunities. Um, and because of this situation, this dynamic, it is putting you in contact with people that maybe before just would not talk to you. They had the same perceptions of, of your profession or maybe even of you individually, but they just didn't feel comfortable sharing them. Well, now they do, and it can be hurtful at times, and, right. and the way they share it may not be the, the most tactful, but that's an opportunity, yeah. you know, and for a believer, especially, that's an opportunity, one, to show some love, yep. you know, that's an opportunity to, maybe if they're not sharing it in, in a way that you think is, is proper, how about a little grace? Uh, it's an opportunity for you to show that, yeah. um, and to build a relationship, um, and maybe that's a little idealistic, but I don't think so. I, I think that's really where we're at today is, um, you know, what the world is using to pull us apart. I think he can use to pull us together if we will 
humble ourselves. And, and, and I'm not saying put yourself in a tactically bad situation, uh, but when those opportunities exist, listen to what somebody has to say. Yeah. Uh, it, and I'm not, I'm not offering these comments as someone who knows these, you know, intrinsically, and I'm sharing this great wisdom. I'm saying these are just things I've learned, mm. you know, through my interactions and times I've walked away from conversations and thought, man, I, I just made that worse. Uh, how, do, how do I make that better? Because uh, I'm going to be in these situations. And so, again, I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. That's such good insight. And I'll tell you, there's, there's two fundamental truths when it comes to communication. And this, this transcends race, ethnicity, gender, whatever. Every human being, when it comes to communication, has two basic needs. They want to be heard and they want to be understood. I mean, that's... That is the fundamental basis of communication. We all, even if someone vehemently disagrees, if they can at least hear us and try to understand, it at least drops so many of those walls to go, they care enough to at least listen and try to understand. Um, and really, that's what I, that what I hear from you. And that's, so, I think, so powerful. Yeah. Man, JD, I'd like to ask, how has God rescued your heart in, in all these years of being an officer from not allowing it to become a hard heart like you're you're yeah. seeing the worst of humanity like genu- genuinely and so it's almost miraculous to have a soft heart still towards people mm. after all these years how have you how has god intervened in your life and rescued your heart in that first let me give you the comedic inside the walls answer because <laughs> i was only a cop for like three years and then i've been to something besides a cop for like the last yeah. 25 uh and for those listening that may be in the profession so i i was a patrol officer for three and a half years and i became a detective then i was a supervisor mm-hmm. and so uh it's not uncommon when i'm joking with my buddies this and i and i give a comment about policing and they'll say how would you know you haven't been a cop for yeah. 25 years yeah. uh so my comic answer is yeah. just because I'm not a cop. That's why I can say this way. Uh, but no, in, in reality, uh, for me individually, uh, I think God has blessed me um, through my life stages of making them line up with what I'm experiencing at work. So I would say, when, when again, when I started the profession, I, I hate to say I was a real black and white person, uh, but I mean, I'm a reader. And I'm like, I know, I know the statutes, I know the ordinances, I know the rules, I know the rule book. Yeah. And so I will go to work and I will apply the rule book yeah. and I'm going to call balls and strikes and I'm good at that and I'll do that. And, but then through, through those experiences, well, you're calling balls and strikes on people in their lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so God starts letting you in on, Hey bud, <laughs> this isn't just about what's the black, it's not the law. Yeah. You know, don't be a Pharisee. Don't, don't, don't do that. O- yeah. Open your heart and look at how it's impacting some people. That's good. And again, I had, I had the benefit of I have close family members that have been uh, involved in the legal system. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can understand, well, good people can make bad decisions. Yeah. Some people can make a lot of bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And you can write them off as bad people. And, and I'm not telling you not to. I, that's, that's up to you and your heart and, and how you look at it. But I'm telling you, there's, there's a lot of just everyday normal people like me that have decided to go left right, where I, for whatever reason, was led to go right. I won't even say it's a decision, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I was fortunate enough to go right. They're paying the consequence. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are things I've done in my life that are no different than these other people. 
again, they got caught. They're paying the consequence. I, I was afforded an opportunity not to pay the consequence. Now, now, now this is a 52-year-old man talking, not the 26-year-old person talking. But I, I just think God led me through experiences uh, that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, hold up on being as judgmental as you want to be. Uh, and so I got married at 30, a little bit later in life. Uh, I had my first of three children uh, when I was 31, a little bit later in life. Uh, but I'm get to experience it. Okay, I'm dealing with someone's child that's going through a situation. Well, now I've got children. And so, yeah, I can say, well, look, you're not doing anything. You're 13 year olds running amok uh, and doing these terrible things. And then I have to go home and I have a 13 year old. Mm -hmm. And so I just think God's put me in a place where I'm constantly having to look in the mirror. And, and, and so I, I mean, I have an ego and, and, and anyone that's, uh, so my position is an executive position. Uh, so you probably hear, yeah, you're right more often than you hear you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you don't have a good network of people around you to keep you grounded yeah. and let you know that you're probably wrong as much as you're right. Yeah. Uh, but if you have that, then it does give you in my, in my experience, it's giving me the opportunity, uh, to take a step back when I have mm -hmm. been wrong, mm -hmm. uh, to, to pause a second and think about it. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so I, I've just been blessed in, in numerous ways, yeah. um, but like I said, the, the people in my life helped me a ton. That's so good. And you have to choose to look in the mirror, right? Like you do. The, the, the enemy wants you to just write all these people off, but yet God has kept you in a posture of constantly looking at yourself in the mirror and keeping your heart soft towards the people he's called you to serve. And that's just incredible. I love that. It, it is great. I, Again, I hate to pull into the negative, but I think there's a positive here. So after George Floyd was murdered, um, I, I got several different emails, phone calls from people I did not know uh, in the community. And they weren't cussing me, uh, and they weren't telling me that all cops were bad, uh, but they were sharing with me. Uh, mostly the theme was, hey, I'm the parent of a child of color, yeah, and I'm scared. Yeah. I'm scared of the police. And my initial reaction to that was, hey, I've got all kinds of data that tells you why you shouldn't be. Yeah. Look, look, let me show you the data. I didn't say this to him. Yeah. But in my mind, I'm yeah. thinking, well, your fears are rational based on my data. Yeah. Based on my experience, you don't have anything to fear. That didn't diminish that I was still receiving these calls. Yeah. And so I met with a couple of people individually, and we had some really frank discussions. And they, they, were, they were respectful, uh, but there was definitely a perspective that was different than mine. And, and then that led to some larger group meetings, uh, most, mostly with, with people with children of color. And the reason I say it that way is not all the parents uh, were people of color. They weren't all black or Hispanic, but their kids were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And through that discussion, at, at some point, it just really hit on me that it, it doesn't matter what your data says. It, it doesn't matter what your individual, my individual experiences were. I had parents and siblings and grandparents in front of me sharing their heart. Mm -hmm. And I think it's things like that that just make you have to take a step back and go, that's the divisive world. Mm -hmm. and, and what the world wanted to tear us apart, I could choose to allow that to happen. Yeah. You know, or I could listen and I could say, okay, well, let me try to understand better. And, I, and I'm not saying that I, that I totally understand. Obviously, I don't. Uh, but 
I'm, I'm open to it. I want to understand. Uh, and at the end of the day, I want those parents to feel just as comfortable if their kid needs help and, a, and an Evan police officer is the one there to help them that I would if it was my children. Yeah. Uh, and so what can I do to add to that? I know I can't fix that on my own. Uh, I know none of us can individually. But what can we do? What, what's within my control to do to give some degree of peace uh, to those people uh, that, that have those perceptions or have had those experiences or that their families had those experiences? Uh, and, and again, that's just something that, that I've been blessed with through this community, uh, through the people I work with, by having friends that go, time out. You know, you don't, I understand what you're saying, but you're not thinking about the other side of the coin or the other 10 sides to the problem. So, well, and that actually is being a counselor and doing, you know, most of my time doing marriage counseling and individual counseling. There's something that I let couples know all the time. And it, I mean, it's true in marriage, but it's true exactly what you just said. Logic never trumps emotion. Logic never trumps emotion. And the key is if somebody's coming in with an emotional, their data is emotionally driven, not logically driven, your logic's not going to subside it. As a matter of fact, when we come at it purely logical, what it says to them is you either don't get it or you don't care. And I think that is where so much of the breakdown is in this, you know, kind of nationwide conversation, so to speak, is because we're trying to bring logic to emotion and it actually is received with you either don't get it or you don't care. We have to be able to speak to the emotion, acknowledge the emotion. Doesn't always mean that the emotion is true. Emotions are real. They're just often really wrong. Just because we feel something, we feel it. It doesn't mean it's right, but we feel it. And so we have to be able to acknowledge the emotion and then we can often be able to, to bring some logic to it. But when we come right out of the gate with logic, it actually has the opposite effect. Absolutely. And, and to be real clear, please don't anybody listening to this take me as saying I'm right and my data is right and you're wrong and you're just emotionally wrong. That, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. <clears throat> what I'm saying is my eyes were open to even if I believe yeah. my data yep. is right and your emotion is wrong. That still doesn't advance us anything. So I, I'm, I'm not condemning anyone's reaction to that. No, and, that's a good clarification. Yeah. I want to make sure I was not trying to, yeah. to paint that picture either. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of room to discuss that. Yes. Uh, I, I, I direct you no further than if uh, there's a book recently written, uh, I think the last five years, called The Color of Law, where it talks about the housing industry uh, and how it developed over the last 120 years in America and, and the different restrictions that were put on racial groups and uh, that really feeds into why there's income gap wealths and, and families and, and just tremendous things that, again, the government mm -hmm. sanctioned and did. Uh, well, if your family experienced all that, and then I'm here today saying, well, the only reason you're, we're different is because my family does X and your family does Y, totally discounting you know, the history of what went on. And so I apply that just like to policing. I, I don't want to ever discount that there's been, that there is real history right. uh, to, to this conversation. Um, so just want to get that in there. No, I think that's great. So let's, um, I want to kind of, as we kind of wrap this up here and thank you so much, I want to hear from you 
what's God been doing in JD? So what is some kind of conference, something that um, you've learned maybe out of scripture, a book that you've been reading? What has God been showing you in the last you know few months or even sometimes last years? I'm a slow learner. Sometimes it takes years for God to, <laughs> to get through my thick skull. Um, but what's God been working in you lately? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, and that's one is 2022 has been a very challenging year for the Edmond yes. community yeah. and specifically for the Edmond Police Department. Uh, for those that are listening that may not know, we had our first line of duty death yes. on July 19th, 2022, uh, when Officer C.J. Nelson, uh, who was a motorcycle officer, uh, was ran into and killed. And, and that was devastating. Uh, the community was great. Uh, has continues to be great. Uh, but for a, for a department that's so close-knit, uh, CJ was a, a relatively young officer, 38 years old, uh, 13 years on, wife, two kids. Uh, that, that has just been so challenging uh, for, for us as a community, for us as a department. And so, you know, God really kind of brings you to your knees at those times. And, and uh, I'm sure he's teaching each of us different things through that. Uh, you know, for me individually, it kind of pushed me to, I won't say reevaluate, because I think I have a pretty good network uh, that, that kind of keeps me uh, focused most of the time. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, I had bouts of kind of melancholy after that with my own children uh, and thinking, okay, am I doing enough? Am I spending enough time? Those types of things. Um, and so then two months after that, we had a second motorcycle officer, uh, that was assisting in a pursuit. He was not pursuing a car. He, he was an ancillary part of this. Um, but during this pursuit, uh, the person they were pursuing, uh, ran in to that officer on purpose and, uh, should have killed him. Uh, it was, it was a high speed collision. Uh, the, the officer was severely injured should have been killed right there and then. Right. Uh, and this is just J.D. Younger's opinion. There's no medical explanation for why that guy's alive. Yeah. But he is. Yes. And, and not only is he alive, uh, but he is, he is fighting back uh, with enthusiasm. Uh, he, he's incredible. He's an incredible story. Yeah. Uh, now, it's, it's going to be a long road through therapy and everything because he had more things broken than probably not uh, inside of him. Um, but I, I use those two experiences to say, that's where God's been working on me. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, what am I doing in my life? If, if that would have been me, have I done what I'm supposed to be doing? Uh, it wasn't me. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. Both at family and at work. Uh, and as a, as a full-blown human, I can tell you I got all the frailties and failings of a human. And so you're just trying to, again, go back and look in the mirror. Uh, where can I be a little bit better? Uh, where do I need to readjust? Um, I've had a lot of opportunities in, in, with those two experiences to love on people like we talked about. Well, that's easy to say in a podcast. We're sitting in a room and I can tell you I'm here to love on people. That's what I'm all about. But you walk out and you have to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so can you put your money where your mouth is on those types of things? Um, can you be opening to open to listening to the feedback? Because... Sometimes what we think is loving on people may not be what they think it is. Yeah. Uh, so, so can we take that and be better? Uh, and so that's, that's really where God's been working on me in the last six months, especially uh, with those two incidents. Um, I, I referred to it earlier, and, and I want to touch on it again. 
if anybody can take anything out of this, get, get a couple of at least a couple of good friends. Yes. Um, that, that you can trust on, lean on, love on, that'll love on you. Uh, you know, both in my personal friendships and then in my professional friendships, I try to tell people right from the beginning, it's easy to be friends when we're all agreeing and getting along. The real test of a friendship is when we don't agree. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to tell me? Yeah. In, in a way that we can survive through. Uh, because that's what I really, I mean, I need the love. I do. I, w- I want some of that love. Um, but what I really need is for you to tell me when I'm going off course or when my actions aren't lining up with, with my beliefs. Um, and, and so, you know, over this last six months, especially I've had friends that have just poured so much into me, uh, both in prayer and, and just time spent, uh, listening to my ideas and tell me, eh, I don't know about that or yeah, go. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would just encourage, uh, especially Christians, get some friends uh, that you can trust on and lean on and, and, and be that for them. That's so powerful. And I'll tell you, I mean, um, so as one of the chaplains, I was at the hospital in CJ that day. And that was one of the hardest moments I've ever experienced. And then fast forward a few months, I was in the ER there when other officer was was in there and it was questionable. Um what I'll tell you is so many of the officers I've talked to that have come together, that have done things, um, rallied around, you know, C.J. Nelson, his family and his wife and kids and going to softball games and supporting them. And it's brought them so much closer together. And to me, that is just Romans eight twenty eight to a T for God can work all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And several of these officers that have, grown closer together. They, you know, they're forming even a tighter knit community than what they even had before. Not, not necessarily even on the job, but specifically off the job outside of it. Um, and those, that's exactly what you're saying. We have to have that band of brothers. We got to have those guys that we can be completely open, honest, and transparent with. And the key is you want to have those relationships before the, you know, the stuff of life hits the fan. I mean, that's the key if we wait until our life is in shambles, it's too late. The key is we got to put those things in place so when it does hit the fan, and it will for all of us at some point, oh, different levels, and you know, but we're all going to walk through something. Do we have that support system? Do we have that band of brothers? Do we have those people that are praying for us, lifting us up, being the hands and feet of Jesus for us? And if you don't, do whatever you can in your power to, to get it, make it happen. So, J.D., thank you so much for being here today, man. What a incredibly insightful and just hearing some different perspective and what it's looked like for you. Thank you for your, you know, 30 years of, you know, service and 30 years of serving the community and serving people. Um, we, we are grateful for it. Uh, you yeah. know, we take for granted so many times an emergency happens. We dial 911. It's a human being who's coming out on our behalf. And so thank you to you for all the officers, um, not just Nedman, but you know, everywhere for what they do in service. And thank you for your service and for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you.